What a difference. The Talkbuster Podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Chipman. You may remember me from such podcasts as the Chipman Brothers Tangent and Creating Geeks, a parenting podcast of great responsibility. I'm here to bring you back to the late 90s, early 2000s, a time of amrays and clamshells, a time of late fees and VHS tapes being replaced by DVDs, a time of stale gumballs and overpriced candy. Yes, that's right. I am talking about the time of Blockbuster Video, the Walmart of the video rental industry, the mom-and-pop video store killer, the corporate big-choice video store that everybody loved to hate. Blockbuster is mostly gone now. Kids today will never know the crazy Friday and Saturday nights with lines wrapped around the store to rent the next big movie. No more will regulars, who are in the know, arrive at 10 a.m. on Tuesdays to snatch up the new rentals that week before the weekend rush. Most of all, no longer will young movie geeks like myself have the memories I, and many others like me, made while working there. You see, under all of the corporate evil and bad practices, Blockbuster was a home, a comfort, a place where I made lifelong friends and even met my wife. It is because of these memories that I, and I'm sure many of you, have that the Talkbuster podcast was created, a place for me and others to share our memories of what once was, of the before time, of the long, long ago. I'm looking forward to see where this goes, how it evolves. Join me, won't you? Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another very special episode of the Talkbuster podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. And before I get into my very special guest and the very Blockbuster-related but um, super cool thing that they're here to talk about. I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons. You are Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, UK Campbell, Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin CV, Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, Collaborating Online, Alex Shaw, Seth Deck, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krauss, Little Nikki, Robert V. Aldrich, Aaron Moriarty, Carolyn Thompson, Scott Arcuri, and Shaw Hansen Gusted. Thank you all so, so, so much for um, doing what you do so I can keep doing what I do. I really appreciate it. Um, this episode, as a lot of my recent episodes in the year of 2021, is brought to you by the COVID-19 vaccine, because I want to go outside. And that's about all I can say there. Today's guest um, is a returning guest, um, Russ Burlingame from comicbook.com and the Emerald City Video Podcast, is here to talk about um, a passion project of his that is uh, just starting now. And We'll let Russ introduce it, and then we can t all tell you why it's blockbuster-centric. Russ, how you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Very good. Excellent. If you hear background noise, I apologize. We got kittens for my daughters for Christmas, and uh, they have decided that now is the time to chase each other loudly up and down the hallway directly adjacent to the office. So um, you didn't you didn't know that I had a side job where I'm paying them for that? Oh, I didn't know. That's that's yeah. it, it's paying off well. Then they're they're doing great. Yeah. Kitty uh, no com. That's yeah. uh, a new venture. <laughs> well, it's funny. I signed up. Uh, I actually just bought a new domain. I bought ecvanalog.com uh, because ecvanalog is what I'm going to call uh, the the self-publishing endeavor that I'm entering into. Love it. And uh, basically what I'm doing, uh, I'm writing a book. Well, I, I'm mostly done writing a book called Best Movie Ever, An Oral History of Elfont and Kaplan's Josie and the Pussycats. And uh, that, that the basic premise of the book is Josie and the Pussycats came out in 2001, 
it was a box office disaster. Critically, it was mixed to bad, and it did like material damage to the careers of Rachel Lee Cook, Harry Alfont, and Deborah Kaplan, the the star and the directors. And uh, you fast forward to now. And it's become a cult classic on the internet. It's widely recognized that this is an underappreciated gem. And so uh, I was really struck by how that kind of thing happens. Like I, I find it, I find it interesting on a regular situation, like mall rats or tremors, where it's just as easy as, well, it was guaranteed in stock at Blockbuster, and the next day it was a hit. Um, but with Josie, since it took years and years for people to kind of come around. I feel like there's even more of a narrative there. Absolutely. And I, I remember it coming out and it being, we barely got any copies of it and we, we hawked it. We all saw it before it came out and we're like, why don't people like this? And this was right off the, um, the coattails of movies like Jay and Silent Bob strike back, which have a similar fourth wall breaking. Like this would make a great double feature with that movie. Cause it's just kind of snarkily looking and going, yeah, we are very much making fun of everything you love. I will say, to- I think this one actually precedes that. Cause didn't Did it? Yeah. Cause strike Uh-oh. back. If you remember, got pulled out of theaters because of nine 11, That's uh, right. because they, uh, Will Ferrell kept calling them terrorists. And this one hit, uh, this one would have been in Blockbuster in August of 2001. Right? I remember being real close. So that Yeah, they were very, very close. And especially when you consider nobody watched it in theaters, so anybody who saw it on tape saw it, like, right on top of Jay and Bob. Right, and it, they, they have that... It's the same feel. It's the same um, uh, tone, I guess, uh, of a movie where it's not taking itself fully seriously, but just coming off of a fresh watch of it, everybody in it is so good. Yeah. Especially, especially Tara Reed, who I feel like doesn't get, especially in the time period, wasn't getting roles that really like her comic timing in this is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And it's funny because I do think that because she got her big break as the hot girl in American Pie, I think that she kind of got pigeonholed in roles that didn't really require her to do much which is a shame because i think she can do a lot more than she's typically asked i uh, agree <clears throat> but yeah the uh for anybody who doesn't know Josie the pussycats is adapted from an animated series from the 70s which is in turn adapted from uh a, an archie comics thing that was developed like minutes before it had to be an animated series it was one of those things where uh, the Archie show had been a big hit on, I think, ABC or NBC. And so CBS was like, hey, we want a piece of that. Is there anything we can adapt? And they took this book that, that had just been called Josie, and they made it into a rock band. So that could be Josie and the Pussycats, because the Archie show, if you remember, had spawned Sugar Sugar, the popular uh, novelty song. And so the idea was, just like on the other network, we want this animated series to have a band so that we can have singles so that we can make extra money on the side. Nice. Uh, so uh, that that's the birth of the property, so to speak. I, I do have like around here someplace the first appearance of Josie in the comics. But like in that, she doesn't have any real resemblance to who she would have eventually be, except, you know, red hair. Right. Um <clears throat> But uh, so they're they're a band in this one. They're kind of like a pop punk band. It's 2001. That was the the vibe. It was I heard somebody recently compare it to like an Avril Lavigne kind of sound, which is fair. Uh, the actual yeah, 
me it reminds me a lot more of like early Paramore. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, the, and again, like the, I mean, obviously the the best comparison is Letters to Cleo because Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo was the actual uh, singing voice of Josie. But uh, they, is the, what essentially happens in the film is that the biggest band in the world is missing, presumed dead, and the Josie and the Pussycats are found by the record company and be and immediately hyped up as a potential replacement for this boy band du jour. Uh, not the boy band du jour, which, I mean, that is what they are, but literally the name of the band is du jour, because this is that kind of movie. Uh, and it's wonderful. It, it, to me, is one of the... The opening gag with du jour in this movie could be an entire movie itself. Oh, yeah. And it's just the intro, the, their song, Backdoor Lover, and you're just like... The, I feel like this movie... Because a lot of people think, you know, that this movie was way out, like its fan base took a while to get, but I feel like it was very, like, again, same thing with like a movie like Scott Pilgrim versus the world, just finding its fan base later. Yeah. But this movie right now, especially with the Riverdale tie in. Oh, yeah. Would, this movie would kill if it had been released now. Absolutely. And I, I that's, I mean, there's a lot of that. First of all, Family Guy wasn't, I, I can't remember if it existed yet, but it certainly wasn't the thing it that did. it is now. It did, but it existed as the, this is that thing that was on in the Super Bowl halftime on Fox one year and yeah. had like a episode run and then got canceled and it hadn't had its DVD resurgence yet. Yeah, and I, to me, I, I almost think this is the this is a kind of movie that would have, like, the reception would have been completely different if we lived in a post uh, family Guy world because obviously Family Guy does not do anything with like pop culture uh, references and stuff or not that they don't do anything but tonally they don't really do anything differently than The Simpsons does it's just that the execution like the rapid fire like just cut away yes. joke and the meta nature um, I think it really prepped a mass audience in this country for it especially a young mass audience for this idea of like meta cinema where you can have the character step away and like look at the camera in the same way that like Jane Silent Bob did. And so I think that I, I'm, I'm struck by if, if family guy had been a phenomenon when this movie came out, I feel like there would have been at least that many more young people who figured out what the movie was doing. Especially when you have something that, you know, you, they definitely didn't know how to advertise this movie. No. Right. Um, and you advertise it as, you know, okay, the, like advertising Josie, because now people get it, right? If, if in, the, in the Marvel DC world of how to advertise something with people that grew up with it to them, they know how to do that now. Yeah. Um, and, but this, you know, it, it's, it's the problem, um, uh, what's it called there? Gem fell into, where they just did not know what to do with that property. Yeah. And, they made something that was entirely for young girls today and forgot you need to tie in what made the, because, you know, Josie and the Pussycats wasn't a pop punk band. They were, you know, it was in the Archie era, right? So it was a little bit different, but that lat latched on to what they were doing in this movie perfectly fine because they kept the core idea perfect. And one of my favorite things that an audience at the time I could see not getting it because we weren't in that cynical everybody is, you know, the cynical person that knows the meta jokes yeah. that everybody is now. That original, like, why, why is the manager's sister there? The country, what are you doing here? I'm in the comic. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, yes. <laughs> like, that's a great joke. 
I also feel like that is it's funny because the way you delivered it, I think that joke might have landed more with the audiences of the time because um, Missy Pyle really understates it. It's just kind of matter of fact. Yeah. It's like, what are you even doing here? I'm here because I was in the comic book. What? It's just uh-huh. so perfect. And, and all of them, everybody they brought to play in this movie, their comic timing was it, it's like everybody working on it and making it knew exactly what they were making except for the production company. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I spoke with a. I, I mean, I've spoken with a bunch of casting crew for this movie or for this book, obviously, because that's what what the book is. It's an oral history, um, and uh, I spoke with. Uh, I think his name's Tom Butler. Uh, Butler is his last name for sure. The the gentleman who plays Agent Kelly, uh, the no government guy, and uh, Mr. Butler was. You know, he's turning seventy in like a month, and he at fifty completely got what this movie was and thought that the script was great and so i feel like you don't have to be like super super uh like young and in the film twitter kind of uh, mentality in order to get it like you just have to go in with your eyes open and i think that a lot of people because this came on the heels of like uh uh Charlie's Angels and Coyote Ugly and some stuff like that. I think a lot of folks uh, went in expecting that this was that. Like, uh, there was this kind of subgenre. Uh, I, I was on another podcast and I described it as like uh, feminist girl exploitation movies, where it's like women can kick ass, but also here's sixty shots of her ass. Uh, right, and this and this movie didn't do any of that. No, they didn't. Uh, and so I think that was part of it is I think they went in there. A lot of people went in thinking this was going to be spice world. And so you go in with the, with that lowered expectation and be like, the narrative is meaningless. Cause really what we're looking for is a handful of jokes and a lot of pretty women and like they're pretty, but they're not being exploited. And so it, it the movie being very smart and very sharp, I think was just not what a lot of people expected or even wanted when they were going in. And and even you think about a subversion like this was even a gamble with the Lego movie. Oh and, yeah, and that, and that movie exactly was doing what this movie did. We're going to sell you something by completely crapping on and telling you that selling things to you is bad. Yeah, and I I can't get enough of every time I watch it, like the blatant product placement in the movie that's making fun of product placement. Yeah. You know the Target bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, uh, the my favorite is the McDonald's bathroom where uh, she's using. Uh, she's got the fry loofah. Yeah, um, the fry loofah. And what's funny about that is I actually I looked and looked. I was trying to figure out if those were like created for the film or if they were something that had been found by the props department. Um, it's not a loofah. It's actually just a stuffed toy from the 80s you can buy them on ebay there's a kit there's a set of three it's like the fry the burger and i think a a happy meal box or something and they're like it's like 100 bucks for the set or 40 bucks for any given one i keep just barely resisting the urge to buy that stupid fry (laughs) (laughs) i think (laughs) but uh but yeah, it's a it's a movie that's way smarter than it had any business being, and I think in a lot of ways that hurt it because people didn't expect it to be. Uh, you know, the the filmmakers who made it had just done Can't Hardly Wait, which yep. is a great funny movie, but it's really not 
sharp and incisive in any way. Um, they did write the screenplay for a very Brady sequel, and they contributed a rewrite pass to uh, Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. And so we've seen, like, they at that point had already done the, like, we're going to look at this brand that existed or this IP that existed and try to make it, uh, you know, try to make it contemporary in a way that makes fun of itself. Uh, and obviously to varying degrees of success because Viva Rock Vegas was kind of a mess. Uh, I still think the Brady sequel was uh, pretty good. Uh, I, just, I love a very Brady sequel. They so. just hadn't, I think honestly it was, the, a lot of those movies that came out at that time were kind of flashes in the pan by design. Uh, you would see like the sequel to the Dukes of Hazard movie or the Brady Bunch movie tank. And it's not because they were discernibly better or worse than the previous one. It's just because I think a lot of audiences said, oh, OK, we had fun with that. Now I'm moving on. Um, right, right. You, you you got your chance. You you made me like something that I didn't think I was going to enjoy. And I want to find the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because I think that, again, like those kinds of movies probably would do better now than they did back then because brand loyalty is so much more of a thing. You know, social media especially, uh, you can see, you know, not to bring it there, but you can see it with the Snyder thing, both for and yeah. against Zack Snyder. People craft their entire online identity around loving or hating a, a movie. And right. so and you, I think... You can't, and you can't just be okay with it. Yeah. That's not acceptable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think that it, in that context, I feel like a lot of those big franchise movies where it came out and then the second one came and it was like, oh, but it's the same thing. And so nobody went. I feel like a lot of those would have done really a lot better in the age of social media because it's like, it's the same thing. You know, uh, it, the Deadpool exactly 2 of it all. What you want. And it, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, imagine a very Brady sequel with social media. The, the fact that they did the um the uh hawaiian totem thing yeah. and all that and oh and we're gonna have you know uh characters doing mushrooms and go and like the the jokes in that it, you and you can absolutely tell they were written by the same people that wrote this movie because the jokes are like five chess moves ahead of the audience they were billing these movies to yeah and that's so i i, I think it's funny because i think if you really paid attention to who these guys were uh it would have been easy enough to see like they're not going to do the movie you think they're going to do i mean just the fact that they they cast uh parker posey and alan cumming as the villains it's like so good. obviously both of them have done mainstream stuff in the past and that parker posey in particular was right in the middle of her like move into super mainstream that she had for a little bit there but like i do kind of feel like the two of them together like i don't know i feel like if i saw a movie that had cast two like indie icons in a big blockbuster kind of i would think one of two things either one it's going to be incredibly subversive and that's why they signed on or two that they were going to play off of their existing kind of persona as pretentious indie people and that's why it was going to work uh and and so in this case it's like i think that if you paid a lot of attention it's like you see some of the stuff that harry and deb had done in, in the past and then you see uh you know parker posey and Alan coming in the movie i think that you could have probably seen it coming i always joke like there's a lot of the reviews for the movie that just did not get 
what the movie was trying to do. And I always joke, like, how can you not understand? Like, how do you not get the joke? The movie opens with Backdoor Lover. That's not like a part of the movie. That's the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And and so to me, it's kind of like, I, I, I'm not sure how that slips past you. Like, how do you think that that's just a song? <laughs> um, right. And then, and then the just the 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 dynamic of that band, right? Like setting you up how ridiculous and yeah. pointed Dujour is, and then have you go, "Oh yeah, the rest of this movie is just a narrative. I need to take it face value." Yeah, <laughs> like Dujour means crash positions. How do you not come out of that and go, "Oh, I get," because it's it's one part biting social commentary, one part a very you know kind of benign you know, every movie like it, rock star narrative. Yeah. That, that they, but then it's also like an Austin Powers movie, you know, and like the, the pop culture jokes. And it's like, yeah, well, that's actually a really good parallel. But it's all really intelligent. And that's the thing that I think a lot of those reviews just didn't get is they, they thought this movie was just stupid. And it's not. Yeah. I mean, again, like that you get, there was a review and I cannot remember who it was, who it was. But uh, one of the things, and I, I don't remember if I said it or if I just thought it during our conversation, none of the, the product placement was paid for. All of that right. was just put in there by the filmmakers to make a point. And somebody, I can't remember who had written a review where part of the review was, well, it's really hypocritical for them to have all of this product placement in a movie that's criticizing product placement. And it's like, no, but that's the joke. Like they didn't get paid, you know, this is, you know, this is like 12 steps beyond that scene in Wayne's World 2 with the pizza. Uh, But everybody got that that was a joke because they mugged for the camera. And this one, it's like, no, this is just that's the DNA of the movie. And so a lot of people catch on. No one in the movie ever points it out. It's it's the it's the spears hitting the wall in the background in airplane, and Robert Stack is playing it one hundred percent serious. Yeah, exactly. Or whoever. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. I don't think that was Robert Stack. Was that Robert Stack? Uh, no. no, and I can't remember the guy's name. Yep. Um, but Sorry. I, <laughs> I I know who you're talking about. I can picture him. I cannot remember his name, and I feel bad it's about okay. that. It's he, funny. Um. He's he, classically known for having read the script and not getting it. He said, I thought this was a comedy. Why yeah. is my character not being funny? And then his wife read the script and said, this is hilarious. Just do your normal shtick and yeah. don't react. <laughs> well, and I, it's funny. Um, I, can't, I, I still, three minutes later, can't remember his name. But I recently read a book or listened to an audio book about Full Moon Pictures, the director yes. VHS uh, studio that existed in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I guess still exist, but they're not the same anymore. But in any event, uh, he was a full moon veteran. Um, he did a bunch of their movies. Lloyd Bridges. Oh, oh, Lloyd, oh okay. Never mind. I was thinking of the other guy. I was thinking of the younger guy. Um, oh, Robert Hayes. Yeah. Leslie Neal. Yeah, there's a Robert, Robert Stack, wasn't it? So that's who I could have been talking about. I don't know. Um, I, I, I was thinking of an entirely different person. So that was why okay. I was, <laughs> but anyway, um, but the point being, yes, you're exactly right. Like the 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 humor in the product placement stuff comes largely from the fact that it's being played straight. And the satire definitely comes from the fact that it's being played straight. You know, an anecdote that I shared with a couple of the people who I've spoken to for the book is when in 2001, Josie and the Pussycats came out, this idea where every shot would be completely saturated with logos and advertising in all places, that was crazy. 
Like, that was the joke. But we have come to a place in our society where that's not the joke anymore. Uh, we have a, a shopping mall near us, and it's under renovation. And there, there's a, a long, narrow hallway that connects the old part of the mall from the new part of the mall, right? And my wife and I were walking down that hallway, and there's all these, like, retail kiosks. And every, like, little six-foot area of wall between the kiosks has advertising on it. And then when you come to the end, there's like a turn and the whole turn is just plastered with advertising up to a vending machine. And then the vending machine is the end of the hallway. And so I just remember looking at it and going like, we're living in Josie now. Like this is that, like the, that, that hit that ridiculous world that they gave us is real. This is very much like the idiocracy effect. Oh yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the Pepsi shopping mall and the Snickers walkway. Yeah. And the, and the Reese's Pieces Fountain. Oh, and the in in between the Abercrombie and the um, American Eagle is the uh, uh, you know good and plenty wall. It's like what? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny uh, you you say that, but one of the one of the great instances of that that happens in pop culture that people have just become so inured to. Uh, uh, Tom Butler, that same gentleman I was talking about earlier, actually talked about this with, during his interview. Is baseball? Like, oh yeah, it isn't. It isn't just the walls anymore, and it isn't even just the CGing of more sponsorship onto the literal field. But also, it's every six seconds the announcer has to break away to be like, and that fly ball comes to you from Domino's. Yeah, and, it because because there was a. Um, a double play that's the pizza hut double play where exactly. eight people in the crowd are going to get the brand new stuffed crust pizza for pizza hut. let's cut away to that ad exactly <laughs> and 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 i mean as as somebody who loves baseball and who has been uh watching baseball since i was a kid um he pointed that out and i felt a little bit like the the frog in the pan of water where it's like uh if you you know the the metaphor i'm yep. talking about oh yeah um and it's like, it's like, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it because that happened so slowly. And it started with Yankees baseball. And Yankees baseball, everything is very regional to New York. And so you would get like the Modell minute of whatever for this. That there's like a Modell's was a sporting goods store in New York at the time. Um, and well, we and so, them. oh, okay. I, I thought they were gone, honestly. They but, are. We had them. That oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, in any event, um, so it's one of those things where to me, uh, I, I didn't even notice it kind of happening because it started with the Yankees and everything was so regionalized. I was like, oh, this must be a New York thing because New York City is all very commercial. Uh, and then when everybody else started doing it, it's like, well, of course they are. The Yankees do it. Um, and, and so it's funny that like you, you sometimes it takes somebody to just stop and point out like, do you realize how often they're advertising to you? Like you can't get through an at bat without three ads. And yep. And uh, then you're like, oh, yeah, that's actually true. That's kind of terrifying. Um, but, yeah, so the, it's it's one of the great things about satire. And one of the things that I think makes this movie age so well is uh, truly clever satire and truly ahead of the curve satire uh, is the kind of thing that people will watch 20 years later and just be like, holy shit, this is all real. Um, yeah, you think, you know, like. It's going to be weird to be able to explain to someone 20 years from now, like this movie made in the year 2000, and they'll be like, is that satiring the year 2000? Is that what things were like in the year 2000? It's like, no, 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 no. 
things <laughs> got that bad about 15 years later. Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh wow okay yeah you could see the roots of it starting to take hold in 2000 and so they thought like wouldn't it be funny if it got this bad and then it wasn't funny at all (laughs) a funny anecdote to that is um have you ever seen the movie paranorman Uh, i haven't i i remember when it was at blockbuster but i didn't i didn't see it so so paranorman is brilliant and, and i'll give the quick aside it's obvious when you watch it that the town the movie takes place in is supposed to be salem mass like mm-hmm. the story is about a, a little girl who was burned as a witch and is haunting this town and there's a curse and the pilgrims from the town are brought back as zombies and you know and this kid's family has to keep it sealed away whatever but it was Leica is a british company mm-hmm. and so they wrote you know the idea of okay, we need to make a ridiculous town that's obsessed with Halloween and witches and all this. Huh. And I guess they wrote the script and then sent their writers to the United States to visit Salem. And they went, people in America are going to think that we don't under, like we, we didn't make it in- intense enough. Like we didn't go yeah. far enough. Like this city is actually bonkers. And like yeah. made the movie, they, they like upped it in the movie. And I'm like, that's really cool. And yeah. it's the same thing. Are people going to look and go, was it really this bad? And it's like, no, 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 no. They, they had like an oracle into the future. What? Yeah. The- <laughs> uh, well, and it's, it's funny. Uh, have you ever seen, by the way, Stan Against Evil? It was a yes. show on, I, I, I loved that show. Uh, and it, it very similar in the sense of it all revolves around the, the, the witch burning. Um, but I also remember watching that show and watching the pilot for Winona Earp within about a week of each other. And just being like, it's the same premise, literally the same premise. Just, you know, one of them's a bunch of rednecks and the other one is a bunch of like beautiful LGBT women. And uh, so I, I remember I talked to the showrunner for Winona about the season one finale and I mentioned this show. And I was just like, at some point when Winona's over, you have to watch this because it's it's fascinating, the parallels, but at the same time, like, you know, you have the plausible deniability of saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about if you don't watch it before the show's over. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the movie itself was, like we said, it's, it's, it's a really funny movie. It's a lot smarter than it has any business being. And I really liked this idea of kind of looking at the trajectory it took from being this box office failure. You know, it, it came out, it cost about... Uh, a lot of the reports say 40 million. Uh, the the filmmakers told me that they were instructed to keep it below 30 million specifically, um, and so I don't know what um, you know. Maybe 40 is including the uh, PNR or whatever. But uh, you know, it's reported to have cost about 40 million. It made a little less than 20 at the theaters, and so it was uh, the. One of the famous things from there was a, a podcast that did basically what I'm doing, but with fewer interviews and more kind of narrative. It was called Josie and the Podcasts. And uh, in that, one of the things they talked with Deb Kaplan, one of the two writer directors about, was the fact that she remembered on the day of release hearing somebody in the Universal offices refer to it as dead on arrival. Ugh. And so that was the situation that they had was that this movie was dead on arrival and that it was pulled from theaters almost immediately again like especially when you it's it's so odd when you consider that it's a universal movie uh because i don't see universal as being an especially bad or stingy 
um, producer, promoter, distributor. No, especially recently, they they've yeah. had they've had um a good like run of like five or six years where they've just been they stood by their projects that don't do mm-hmm. as well, and they stand by. I, so it is really weird coming from Universal that they well, be like pull the, out. <laughs> the funny thing about it is, though, when you think about it in the context, um, you can go every five years for. 20 years or so you can find one of these at universal specifically like the the best examples that come to my mind are all universal movies uh because you have uh tremors in 1990 mall rats in 95 oh yeah josie and the pussycats and then uh a few years later is scott pilgrim and those are all universal movies and they're all very, very similar in the sense that they're like, okay, well, they come out, they don't connect with the desired audience. Uh, and so they bomb at the theaters less because they're not good and more because like there's this weird fluke of just like we don't we don't know who we're selling to. I always forgot Tremors was a bomb. Yeah, I know. It's so funny because it's been you know, it's an iconic franchise now. There's been six sequels and a TV show and some video games. But yeah, that movie did not do well in theaters. That's part of why it only got one theatrical sequel. All those other ones went straight to, to video because it was a bomb at the theaters. But then it came to Blockbuster and it was the number one rental in the entire rental market for 1990. Yeah, it, I mean, and the advertising for it in rental, they recognized it. They, yeah. they, they went they went double down on that advertising when it was renting well because yeah yeah and that's so it's it's like those kinds of stories are always fascinating to me especially because of my background in the video store uh which is a funny double entendre i didn't mean because people don't know because they can't see our skype call but my zoom background is a family video store so when i say my background in the video store uh there's there's literally one behind me but um those kinds of stories always fascinate me because I'm the video store guy and I can be like, Oh, but look like this is how blockbuster saved mall rats, you know, um, with Josie, it's a little bit more complicated than that because it wasn't just home video. It was like a bunch of different factors. Um, I do think, and one of the things that I talked with some folks about in the book, um, and, and it's kind of funny because most of the people who I've talked to about this are men, but I, I, th- I honestly believe that part of it is, finding acceptance among men you know uh when you think of a cult classic you say that and outside of rocky horror basically every movie that you think of skews explicitly male you know yeah yeah and and so i think that the idea of a cult classic is or at least was very very gendered and i think that part of the reason that josie finally started finding real mainstream kind of you know, because there's like an L.A. Times article that you can Google about like how it's an underrated masterpiece. And there's a bunch of BuzzFeed stories and stuff. And I feel like those started to come after a bunch of dudes started putting up like YouTube videos and stuff going, actually, it's not so bad. You know, and, and there's a there's a metaphor for that in the comics industry, which is that I had a handful of people who told me the reason that I checked out this movie, which is a comic book movie, is because Brian Michael Bendis told me it was good. And Brian, like nothing against Brian, like that's not that's not to say like you shouldn't listen to Brian or that. You know, but it's like the idea that uh, you need the guy who wrote uh, House of M to tell right. you 
check out this movie that's based on a comic book in order for pe- for comic book fans to be interested. Uh- <laughs> but you know, it's it's actually not something I had really put much thought into until you just mentioned it there. But now that you say it, everybody that told me Josie and the Pussycats was a good movie were all guys. My, yeah, I mean, there's my- there's a lot of women who love this movie, but I think a lot of them aren't. They don't get as evangelical as the men do because I think. And, and they certainly and they certainly weren't talking about it when it first came out on video. That's that's you know, at least that's not. I mean, I I, I had a pretty you know well half and half gendered store that I worked in. And yeah. It was my buddy Steve who said I actually saw this when it was in the theater, and I've been waiting for it to come out because it's brilliant, and you all yeah. have to see it. And then we all watched it. But you know that that Brian Michael Bendis tie in because Brian Michael Bendis is awesome, but he seems to be a name that definitely carries with him that kind of fan base of like just evangelical comics fans that are like this guy, if he says it or he does it, I'm, I'm not, I don't even have to think a second thought. Well, and I think too, when you think about Brian in 2001, um, it's a little bit of a different animal because uh, you know, I, I always joke that as much as I've loved this movie since it came out, it wasn't really until a few years ago when the degree of my affection became almost a bit where it's like everybody started knowing that I'm the Josie guy and people would start tweeting things at me when the movie came up in conversation (laughs) and it became almost like a joke that like, Oh, well the Josie guy. So yeah. And so don't worry, I've got a Josie guy. We got this. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I think that like, I do think to a certain extent there's that element of this is a movie that's clearly aesthetically skews very very female and the brand or the ip uh was designed for you know 10 year old girls um before i mean obviously the movie's not but that's the the ip and so i think that um to a certain extent it's not just like the the toxic masculinity of needing to be quote-unquote told that it's okay by a man you look up to but also i think that part of it is just um the humor that's inherent to Brian Michael Bendis Eisner winning writer of torso about a serial killer who dismembers people telling you, Hey, go watch Josie and the pussycats. It's amazing. Um, there's something there. I think, uh, where it, it carries a different kind of connotation to it. It's like, wait, why is the serial killer guy telling me to go watch Josie and the pussycats? Um, right. And I wonder, you know, now that you bring up the, the toxic masculinity and having a, a guy tell you it's okay, which is definitely, um, it's definitely instinctually built into us and also societally right. built into us. Um, I wonder, cause this, this far preceded, um, the bronies and, yeah. um, and I am not, not to bring up any negative or positive to that community cause it's still going strong and it's great is I wonder if this had come out after that broke if this movie would have just been eaten up. I think so. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting about it is I think that it, this movie came at exactly the right and exactly the wrong moment where it's like, um, the movie is so on point for what it was critiquing in that moment that it's hard to argue this should have come out at any other time. Cause I think it would have been a different movie if it came out a week before, you the know, jokes would have been different for sure. Yeah. yeah. But but at the same time, I do feel like it also came at a, at a moment where it's like, 
this wasn't what we were looking for. And there are so many things, you know, we talked about family guy. We talked about, um, the end of Napster, uh, plays into it. Or the, the, you know, the launch of Napster, which came only a few months after this came played into it. Um, and I think, I feel like there are so many little things where it's like, Oh, if X had gone differently, Josie and the Pussycats could have been a big hit. Um, well, and also the music industry they're making fun of does not exist now. Yeah, like that's and you can't, you can't make that joke now to someone who didn't live when that's like how stuff was being jammed down your throat. You know. Yeah, and I do think that's a big part of it too. Is there is an element of nostalgia that's inherent to watching a movie like this because it's like, oh my god, there's Tower Records, you know. Um, and so I do think like there's an element of that that helps to power. Uh, this becoming a cult classic now. I mean, I don't think uh, people have been saying, uh, you know, men, women, everybody have been saying this is a great movie. People should be paying more attention to it since it came out. But I think that the volume and intensity of love for Josie that really started happening about five years ago, probably in a lot of ways goes hand in hand with people who are roughly our age or a little bit younger who are going like, oh man, remember that stuff? You know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and so like and you know certainly when you look at uh you know overt 80s nostalgia is has been in vogue for like five years now uh, and you get things like stranger things that come out of it and it and i think that uh, it's really interesting to me to look at that through this lens and to be like i feel like maybe a lot of people are like really loving this movie more than they necessarily would because they're watching it and they're getting 2001 back you know yeah which is a weird thing to think about until you realize that, you know, I think what, what were people saying that 1999 right now is like, I, I forget. It was somewhat watching a show that took place in 1999 now would be the same thing as like your, your parent watching mash. It, it was something, yeah. it was something where like, and it's like, no, like the wonder years. That was it. Yeah. It was something like is the same distance. The wonder years was from the time it was supposed to be. And you're like, wait a minute. No, no, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always the- those, com- there's always those comparisons, uh, the wonder years or even happy days. Well, it's like people. it. Yeah, exactly. It's like every, there's always that inclination to be like, I'm at middle age. Let me look at look back at when I was a teenager and everything was more fun for me, and uh, and and so you end up looking at things that are 20 years old. And I do think that in the digital age, uh, where everything's at our fingertips all the time, there's less of a need to build that 70s show. Like you don't need a TV show set in 2000. You just need to go back and look at stuff made in 2000, which is much right. easier to do now than it's ever been. Right, and especially since a lot of those lines have blurred between a lot of the stuff from 2000 was predicting where yeah. technology and pop culture was going to go rather than looking backwards. And yeah, which 2000, especially because we had the, the millennium turnover, there was a real, like, there was a conscious aspect of that. There was a real fetishization of, like, futurism and technology, and there was a lot, because, like, people who thought that by 2000 there would be flying cars, and then we reach 2000, and they're just like, okay, so what do we think it's gonna look like in 10 years? You know? It's really cool. Um, in I wanted to give you a chance, um, you know, because we'll talk forever, and yeah. I don't, but, but I want to make sure you get to tell people, you know, about the campaign and what the book is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like I said, I'm doing an oral history of this movie and it's not just talking to cast and crew, although that's obviously a big part of it. I'm also talking to, um, 
fans uh, about basically how they kept this movie alive for all that time. People who ha- who found it during the intervening, you know, 15, 20 years before it was a classic or people who loved it the whole time. You know, uh, Chris is one of the people I talked to in the book. I did talk to a kind of a, a variety of everyday fans who are just people who liked the movie and reached out to me on social media. And then, you know, more quote unquote famous fans, um, where I, I spoke with you and I spoke with uh, Jeremy from Cinema Sins and Brian awesome. Michael Bendis I did talk to because people name dropped him enough times that I finally called him up. Um, and, you know, Sam Maggs, who is a, a best-selling writer who used to work for the Mary Sue. Uh, and, and so I, I've tried to kind of democratize it as much as possible uh, and do a little bit of like the, the people who are famous and who are tweeting about it all the time and then making people think about it again and then a little bit of the people who are thinking about it again and not just necessarily talking to exclusively uh you know famous people but i uh i i still have not completed all my interviews i'm i'm mostly done with the book is what i keep saying um there are if i drop dead right now somebody could assemble the book and it would be fine for everybody but me basically um there are some people who uh, I really want to talk to who have committed to the book but have not yet done interviews because of timing and scheduling and whatever else. Uh, there are some people I haven't heard back from yet who I'm still pursuing. And I've done probably about 20 interviews with fans. I want to do 31. Um, and the reason for that, uh, it, which is funny only to me, is that when I spoke with the directors, uh, I, I asked Harry and Deb something along the lines of, like, how does it feel to be to have done this movie that that you know at the time seemed like such a disappointment but now 20 years later you're still talking about it 20 years later it has this big fan base that's really vocal and harry made a comment that was like you know i'm still not sure how big the fan base actually is i guess we'll you know we'll, we'll have to find out and uh deb followed it up with i mean there's at least 30. <laughs> and so my my goal is to uh, is to interview thirty people for the book or thirty one excuse me, um, and also uh, just because uh, I I've now passed this point and I can say it uh, I I have a, a clever idea that I came up with with a comic book writer friend of mine for a very small extra gift that I'm gonna be putting into the box of the first thirty backers who supported the, the Indiegogo campaign uh, because it's the you're the thirty you know, you're, you're the 30 fans that Deb thought she had. Um, but yeah, so I'm on Indiegogo now. And the reason for that is uh, basically to cover the cost of actually producing a book. I had a couple of specialty presses who expressed some level of interest, uh, whether it was real interest or just, hey, show it to us before you crowdfund and maybe we'll do something with you. Um, and I, I ended up not sending anything to them pre-public or pre uh, crowdfunding campaign because one of the things I realized is that it's an oral history um, there are dozens of hours of work and there's just no way for me to get that all transcribed in time to get the book out in 2021 which I really want to do because it's the 20th anniversary of the movie unless I pay to have it professionally transcribed right. and paying for transcription is expensive because you're paying by the minute uh, there are AI transcription services, but uh, so far I haven't found one that, because I have a very generic voice, 
And so I have not yet found one that doesn't constantly mistake me for the people I'm interviewing, which makes which makes it almost worse than not having a transcript when just yeah. everything is attributed to me. Um, I've had a hard time with those two. And so uh, so I, 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 I believe that I need kind of the human touch of a real transcription service. And uh, I definitely need an editor because I can't be the only eyes on this before it goes out. I'll miss stuff. Uh, and I have a, a really good editor that I've been talking with, uh, and, uh, she's not committed yet, so I don't want to name drop. Uh, she also isn't like super famous or anything. She's just very, very talented. So, but, uh, I, so I got to pay her, I got to pay for transcription and I got to pay to actually print the books because again, I want these, or at least the first handful out in 2021. And I want to be able to, uh, get them in the hands of the people who, really want it and the people who raise a stink every single time i mention it on social media and are like holy cow i can't believe that's happening um you know i want those people to have this book in the 20th anniversary year and so i i'm, I'm gonna do a small print run in hardcover and a small print run in paperback I'm gonna make it available in ebook to download and then uh i'll send it to the publishers who had expressed interest and i'll basically say hey look i did a small print run of these that probably means you're not interested anymore but hey if you want to license it for cheap just to keep it available terrific um but uh the uh the upshot is i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to raise you know the 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 kind of bargain basement price that i set because i wanted to actually meet my goal um well it's three grand uh three thousand dollars uh right now or at least last time i looked we're up over 2500 with about 50 yeah. backers uh so yeah and i'm very i'm very happy with that uh the thing that i kept telling everybody uh because i don't have I, I i've never done one of these and i've seen people who are a lot better known and a lot more talented than me uh have kickstarters and stuff that just didn't take off for whatever reason and so I, I kept telling my wife, like, I'm going to do this. And what's going to happen is I'm going to make like 150 bucks. And it's just going to be the worst of all possible worlds because I won't have made enough to print to do a print run. But I'll still be obligated to the people who ordered them. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm very, very happy because based on the estimates that I got for a print-on-demand service, uh, what I've got right now is enough to cover all of the copies that I've promised to print. Um, so right. if I end up paying for the editing and the transcribing out of pocket, that's not ideal, but it's doable. And, uh, and it's like, there's a symbolic importance, not only to passing, you know, Deb's 30 fans and then 50, which is a nice big round number, but also to hitting that amount where it's like, Oh, I could actually pay to print this now. Like, I don't have to cut a check to do that. Um, and so I'm very, like, I'm very excited about actually getting the book done and getting it in people's hands. But the campaign itself is to pay for all of the stuff you need to take uh, these mountains of recordings and, you know, pages and pages of, uh, I was going to use a visual aid, but that's a podcast. Um, I have these three binders full of raw transcripts from the stuff that I have paid to do out of pocket. And it's just like, even this, it's like I, I spoke for 90 minutes with Harry and Deb on the first day of the, pro the project. I spoke for 90 minutes with Rachel Lee Cook. And then I sent Harry and Deb like <clears throat> 50 or 60 like tiny, trivial follow-up questions that I was like, I don't want to bother you with these. They were just notes I took as I was watching the movie. And Harry is just like, oh, just send it to me and I'll do it whenever. And so like I, I have, you know, ju there's just one binder just with those three interviews in it. And it's like, 
so thick that what I do is I sit and when I have five minutes here and five minutes there, I take out like three different colors of highlighter and I go through and I just read and I highlight for like, this is the color chapter that this, that this quote should go in, you know, because an oral history is not quite a book. Like I'm not telling the story in my own voice as much as possible. There are places where I'm going to have to explain things in between quotes, but the idea of oral history is that most of the talking is going to be, the people who I spoke with. That's so and, cool. And so like you're, I have to craft a narrative out of other people's words, uh, which is, is like, it's, it's a long process, but also it does mean I don't have to do that much actual native writing, so to speak. Uh, which is, which is good because it means that once I get the transcripts done and once I get the, everything paid for and edited, it really does just become about like, okay, let me find the structure. And I, I've got a loose structure that I like now. Uh, I've got most of the interviews done, but not all of them. And so it's like, if, if I needed to gun to my head, I could probably put something together that most people would like in time for April 9th, which is the, uh, uh, the 20th anniversary of the film's theatrical release. Uh, that was originally my goal, but because there's some bigger name people who have not yet completed their interviews i really don't want to like it's one thing if i need to do just harry deb rachel and a bunch of other folks who aren't as like integral to the movie um but while i'm still waiting on some of these big names and especially some of the bigger names who have said yes i will do it it's like i, I don't want to publish that and then go oh sorry you know x you know person x uh, you're not in the book because I was too eager to get it out right. fast instead of good, you know? And there does have to be an end point, which to me, I've chosen August, which is the theatric or the, uh, the home video release anniversary. Uh, you know, August, I think it's 19th will be 20 years since it hit your local blockbuster. And so awesome. that's what I'm going to release, uh, that's what I'm going to, that's when this book is, is set to be released at this point. Uh, my goal is to have the eBooks available to download by that day and to have the, the physical books at least printed, if not mailed out so that that way, uh, you know, I can, I can get them in the hands of people, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's going to be a crazy few months while I try to finish all of this and, the, the crowdfunding campaign is going to be really instrumental to making sure that I have some help, I have some extra sets of hands, and that I can finish it in kind of a sane way. That I'm not just spending every moment of my life, that I'm not working on my day job doing this. Because uh, that's uh, another thing is like uh, my day job, which is pop culture writing. Um, because there's like a potential conflict of interest there, like trying to promote, promote my own book on my own site. It's like I have to put up a big like concrete wall between the two lives. And that means uh, it makes it really hard for me to be like, oh, I can't take 15 minutes on my lunch break and still feel comfortable because right. I'm theoretically on the clock. Um, but yeah, so that's really the idea is the crowdfunding helps me to get to the point where I just have piles of paper that I can go through and do that highlighting and all that organizing and basically structure a story around the words of these people who are a lot more creative than I am. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, like, like I always say, when I talk to you, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. As, as, as a fan of this movie, and I hope there's either fans of this movie listening or 
new fans that are gonna um you know you like you like cult classics and you like being told by people to go see a movie see <laughs> josie see cats it's great um get on russ's campaign which is still going to be going on but when this is released yeah actually it's it's it ends on april 11th yeah. so yeah. i'm gonna probably the, the the big closing event of the thing will probably be like a 20th anniversary live tweet of the movie's theatrical yes. release yes. um so but, go ahead uh, i was just gonna say uh the the short url or whatever for that is is igg dot me slash at slash josie book so it's really easy to track it down uh, if you are inclined to uh, either to pre-order or even just to check out the video and the description and all that stuff to get a, a really uh, a more clear sense of what exactly it is I'm rambling about. Awesome. Well, Russ, dude, as always, thank you so much. And I'm happy to give you um, some portal to the world to help promote this. And I'm psyched with how many people have already joined me in helping you support this book. So, <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. And I always appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking to you. So I'm sure we'll be uh, doing this again soon. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. Thank Absolutely. you for making Talkbuster night or day. And thank you all for doing the same. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.